Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's been a week since the attack on Capitol Hill by a mob of rioters, and and I call it an attack and not, you know, just a random incident, because it seems the more we learn about it, the more this was a premeditated act of violence by at least some of the people involved, people who had zip ties, seemingly had a strong understanding of the layout of the Capitol. It's looking more and more like this could have been so much worse than it was, uh, basically due to dumb luck. And so my my question, and the question we're going to explore in Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network today, is how this fits in with the conversation about terrorism that we've been having in this country since 9-11, about global terrorism, about domestic terrorism, about the powers of the state. Just how do we understand this? Is this an act of terrorism? Is it something else? And what kinds of policy responses can be justified uh, in a world where we understand it as part of the continuum of violence that terrorism is on. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. The family is back together again. Hello, everybody, after a very long time. The gang is back. Get ready, America. We love Jen Kirby. We miss her. Um, and she could replace any one of us, and it would probably be a better show. But, uh, you know, we're all back with you, and you're just going to have to put up with us. So, uh, hi, everybody. We're back. Uh, so, Alex, you cut off a vacation early for this, right? Yep. Weren't you supposed to be on, on vacation this week? That's right. Well, I mean, everything everything is kind of going to hell, or it feels that way. Um, so, last week we talked a lot about the details of the attack, and we, and we talked about the international reaction, how this affects American foreign policy when it comes to state-to-state to state issues. But we haven't talked a lot about the way in which this fits into the national obsession with terrorism that has been going on for about 20 years now, since 9-11. And that, that sounds derogatory, and I, I don't mean it to be. I mean, sometimes I do, but we've been so concerned about the, the, the threat and the specter of particularly jihadist terrorism that I, I, I don't know how seriously the U.S. government has taken the threat of right-wing terrorism. In fact, in the Trump era, I know it hasn't been that serious. So, But I guess before we get into these sorts of comparisons, I want to back up, Jen, and start with you and say, was this terrorism? Like, do we understand it? Is that is that a useful frame for understanding what happened last week? Yeah, so that's, a, uh, I think, a really important question. Um, I wrote a piece on this uh, shortly after the events on Capitol Hill, um, kind of breaking down what that term actually means and and what it means kind of depends on on who's using it and what purpose they have in using that term, right? So it's helpful to think of terrorism in, in kind of three different ways. There are other ways. There are additional things here. But, but for our purposes here, they're kind of like three different buckets. Um, so if you're an analyst, right, or a scholar who studies terrorism, or, you know, for our purposes here, we're 
you know, dissecting this analytically. There is one way that they look at it, right? There's the kind of academic view, which is, you know, it, it has to meet this certain criteria, political violence, right? It's a tactic rather than like a group, you know, uh, groups can use a bunch of different tactics. They can use conventional military tactics, guerrilla tactics. Terrorism is just kind of one piece. So it is the act itself rather than like the group. So we're not saying like, were these far right, you know, groups that were involved in the Capitol, are they terrorists? But rather was this particular act an act of terrorism? I personally and several, you know, many other scholars would probably say yes in this case. And that's because it meets kind of the basic criteria, right? There's an explicit use of violence for a political motive intended to cause, you know, fear or accomplish some goal, right? Then there's kind of the legal one. And that's where the question, I think, gets a little murky. Um, If you're, you know, the FBI or, you know, law enforcement, whether or not you label this terrorism has more to do with whether you think you can prosecute a terrorism case under existing statutes in a court of law. So what we're seeing, you know, a lot of the charges come out of this are specific crimes, right? They are things like you know, being in a public place illegally or destruction of property um, rather than just, you know, terrorism as like a, a, you know, legal definition as a charge. Uh, We're seeing some discussion of potentially charging people under, you know, things like sedition, insurrection. So, you know, when you're the FBI, when you're a law enforcement organization, terrorism, that's what they are kind of looking for in terms of does it meet this like legal definitional criteria? And can I get that conviction in a court of law. And then the third one is, is kind of what we're all used to seeing, which is the you know media, pundits, politicians, and they, you know, will often tend to use terrorism as a as like a slur almost. Like if they are bad guys, if they did a bad thing, then they are terrorists, right? And it's less an analytical and more of a political kind of label. You know, if they did violence against your side or if it was the other side or something like that, right? They are bad guys. Therefore, they did a terrorism. So I think for me, in this case, Alex, you're making faces at me. Yeah, Alex, what, why uh, are you making faces at Jen? What are you? Oh, no, I was just laughing at they did a terrorism. Oh, okay. <laughs> they did a terrorism. <laughs> okay. 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 All right. Because uh, I thought what she was saying was basically non-controversial here. Like we're going, right. No, we're, there's we're no going controversy. through the definitions. Right. Yeah. Okay. I disagree with these scholarly definitions. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think for our purposes here, like, you know, my background is, is as an analyst and, you know, in academia doing, you know, scholarly research work on, on counterterrorism, I would very much probably call this an, an act of terrorism. Like, you know, it, it was overtly political. It, you know, targeted <laughs> non-combatants. Uh, that's not necessarily always a, a criteria, but, um, you know, it, this was outside at war. So it wasn't an act of war in the sense of like, there's no defined conflict going on, um, you know, but it, it, regardless, it falls under kind of a broader umbrella of political violence, right? I think even if we don't pinpoint specifically terrorism, yes or no, I think it it does fit into a broader, there's no question it was political violence. So I think that's right, right? That it's like, it's obviously a form of political violence. For me, the terrorism question uh, is is both important and not important, right? I think it is, it is unimportant in the sense that uh, a lot of this is 
either academic hair splitting, which is obviously significant in a journal article, but not necessarily for public consumption, or just a debate over whether to label these people as like bad people, which we all agree they're bad. We don't need to make them extra special bad by calling them terrorists. Like that's the colloquial definition that Jen was just talking about. And I don't think like debates over those two things are particularly important. I think what does matter when we talk about terrorism, and I think this does sort of relate to that last colloquial definition, is is that we understand this as being um, continuous with the kind of event and reaction to events that we had after 9-11, right? We, 9-11 was this incredible shock to the American system, and it led to all sorts of, honestly, like very bad policy reactions, uh, ranging from the Patriot Act to the institution of torture to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, these were all catastrophic for a variety of different reasons and to varying degrees. Um, but it, it it also created some useful things, right? Uh, really serious attention to transnational jihadist violence and to preparing for terrorist events that, like, there's a reason why there wasn't a significant major transnationally organized attack in the United States after 9-11 on the scope of 9-11. And it's because the security apparatus did good things in terms of intelligence sharing and um, preparations for this kind of violence that could help head them off. That wasn't the only reason why that didn't happen, but it was a significant one, in addition to uh, some of the, the international military tactics. So in terms of, of thinking about this, like we need to start not only shifting our focus from jihadist terrorism, which is something that the U.S. has been slowly doing for a while now as a result of these non-attacks and a series of pretty pretty violent white nationalist and right-wing incidents in the country. But also we need to, to take the lessons of the post-9-11 years very seriously and understand that there are a variety of different policy responses that fall under the sort of broad umbrella of what we do in reaction to non-state or terrorist violence. And to think about which ones have been effective and which ones have been counterproductive and which ones have just been frankly immoral. Yeah. And not to, you know, put too fine a point on it, just to summarize, I think, you know, in in a sentence or so, you know, the terrorism label matters in the sense of thinking about how we respond to it. I want to echo. I think this is an incredibly important point. The terrorism label to me matters because it will actually define a policy response. It will define a societal response to what the challenge is. And we saw this after 9-11 when, it became, when we created the DHS and all these other issues that, that Zach mentioned. And the nation, frankly, cared about it. It was a top policy issue for a bunch of people. They voted uh, people in because of their views on terrorism, many of them uh, bad, but it became an issue of national concern. And if we move on from this and just say it was sort of a one-off attack by a certain extreme group and not, as Zach mentioned, a continuous part of a campaign, a thing that has been uh, plaguing this country for decades, uh, then we take our eye off the ball. And right now in the country, and especially in government, they're having a discussion about, well, what does that post 9-11 world look like? In some people's minds, it means, you know, prioritizing other issues like climate change and, and, and you know, improving the middle class and ending the wars and all that is good. I'm not denting that. But I would argue that a post 9-11 era, at least one aspect of it should be is that move that you make a very clear rhetorical and policy move from caring about, you know, jihadism more than anything else. And you care about far right extremism um, in the U.S. And that requires 
the government to call it out. It requires the government to make it a major policy concern. Otherwise, you deal with it piecemeal as opposed to holistically. Yeah. So I think for me, I want to be really careful here because I don't think it's actually super helpful to treat it as an either or. And I'm not suggesting that that either of you are. You know, I, I don't think it's a I don't think there's a dichotomy. You know, I think it's a false dichotomy to say we have to focus either on jihadist terrorism or on far right terrorism. Right. I think part of the problem, we've actually seen this historically, um, you know, in past decades in the U.S., we've kind of gone back and forth, actually, between these two poles, if you will. Um, you know, there was the 1993 World Trade Center bombing that was done by jihadist terrorists. So. After that, when the bombing at Oklahoma City happened, the initial response and, and thought from law enforcement was, oh, it must be, you know, Islamic jihadists. Well, it turns out it was Timothy McVeigh. It was, you know, pro-militia, anti-government kind of extremists, right? And they essentially missed that. And then, you know, there was a lot of focus because of that. You know, at the time, that was the deadliest terrorist attack in American history on American soil, in, in, in modern American history, I should say. And so there was a lot of focus then kind of shifting back more towards, you know, an emphasis domestically on paying attention to the kind of far right extremist kind of anti-government threat. Uh, and then, you know, 9-11 happens and, and they missed that because we weren't paying as much attention to the jihadist threat. Right. And so now we focused on that and we've started to miss the far right threat again. Right. So I, I think what's really important is to is to make sure that we're not taking too specific or too kind of rigid an approach and going, you know, 181 or the other. I think understanding that, first of all, that a lot of these groups share a lot of traits in common, both in terms of tactics, uh, in terms of, you know, recruitment, in terms of communications online, even in some ideological strains. Um, and we can talk about this more later, but there are neo-Nazi groups who openly praise Osama bin Laden, who use ISIS imagery in their own, uh, you know, their own imagery and their own recruiting and in their literature, um, who are openly borrowing from, you know, ISIS tactics and from, from Al Qaeda. So I think I just want to kind of put that out there that I don't think we, we should be too rigid in saying we need to focus on this or this. To be clear, I'm not saying that there should be an either or. What I'm saying is that there is an important psychological aspect to this in terms of governance, right? When you when I say terrorism, like what comes to your mind, my guess is it's something like Al-Qaeda. And there are good reasons for that, of course. But when we're looking at what is actually the longer term threat to the U.S., something that has been plaguing this country for a long time, when we snap our fingers, we need to at least also have in our minds um, the kind of uh, threat that we faced uh, last week. And and well, uh, good news, at least like Homeland Security and the U.S. government has said now the biggest threat to the United States um, is is far-right extremist um, terrorism and, and, and white nationalism and all that. Um, so we're moving in that direction, but there hasn't really been, and we touched upon it earlier, because Donald Trump doesn't consider it to be a big deal, but like it needs to be signaled as a big deal. I, I agree. Focus on both. Give them the, the important attention here and other forms of terrorism. These aren't the only two. But I think if we're talking about what the U.S. is facing, when again, when we snap our fingers, when we think of what is the terrorist threat to the United States, you need to have both in mind at least. Uh, my, my concern about the way that this conversation often goes is that there's like a one-way ratchet towards doing more and giving the government more power, right? That when you say we should be more concerned about these things, 
We need to be more concerned about white nationalism and not necessarily less about jihadism. Well, when you when you make that argument in that way, you end up making an argument implicitly for the government having more ability to go after more people and for loosening civil liberties restrictions and allowing more surveillance, or at least if not making an argument for it, certainly creating the conditions in which the argument for those things becomes more plausible. And this is like not a hypothetical concern right now. The Biden people have at one point uh, during the campaign proposed a new domestic terrorism law that would allow for uh, law enforcement to have increased powers in going after white nationalists. And like that sounds good in theory. But in practice, these laws get abused really, really easily uh, in ways that are both like morally wrong and counterproductive. One of the things that radicalized Timothy McVeigh, uh, who we've been talking about, were the uses of, of force by the state at Ruby Ridge and Waco, uh, right? And they weren't against militias exactly, right? It was uh, just people that they found sympathetic victims who the state viewed as, for a variety of reasons that are not really worth getting into right now, uh, enemies are dangerous. And so when you give government agents more powers to surveil, arrest, and even commit violence in the pursuit of arrests, right? You you end up not only getting innocent people hurt, as the 9-11 experience should really make us think about, uh, given the massive number of civilian casualties that have come from the war on terrorism and um, the, the harm done by U.S. agents in for people who are in our custody, but also ends up inspiring more violence by making the victims of the United States seem sympathetic, even when they shouldn't be sympathetic. I really don't think anyone should think that zip tie guy who looked like he wanted to capture members of Congress and maybe execute them is like a nice and friendly guy. But if people like him are unfairly victimized by the U.S. government, their civil liberties violated, uh, that, that could be a serious problem. And this becomes tricky uh, for a pretty simple reason. When you're dealing with, you know, jihadist terrorism around the world, it's kind of like a military problem. At least we treat it that way, right? If you're dealing with terrorists at home, it becomes a law enforcement problem. And um, that is a different set of resources, legal rationales, requirements, et cetera. Um, and since they actually kind of effectively have to go through the U.S. legal system, it makes it somewhat harder to build cases and and prosecute and all that. So it would require a pretty big sort of focus shift and a move more towards a law enforcement function um, in this case. And we're already seeing the complexities of that um, with the Capitol. I think there's a, a third piece here. Um, and I definitely want to get into some more specific conversation about who exactly was involved and where these different groups fall in the kind of spectrum of, of far right political violence and, and what their confluence actually means for, for the threat profile and, and what to do. But there's a kind of a third piece here that I think is really important um, in terms of acknowledging the far right domestic terrorist threat. And that is acknowledging that it is a homegrown threat in the sense of, you know, when we think about a lot of times like the jihadist threat, it's a it's a foreign threat. Right. It's portrayed as this the others. Right. It's this outside force. Um, even though there are plenty of homegrown, you know, people who are radicalized, who were American citizens, et cetera, in the United States. Um, you know, the the conception, I think, you know, we're seeing from even just in the aftermath of this capital attack, right? Like all these people were live streaming their actions and posting on social media. And all of a sudden, all these people's family members and friends are going online and going, uh, that's my cousin. That's my neighbor. Uh, that guy lives down the street from me. 
oh god that was my dad like people are you know and they're contacting law enforcement um and i think that's a you know that's something we need to recognize right this is this is us this is america right this is a problem that is not some foreign invading force that is not some foreign ideology that is not some scary other right this is something that is is fundamentally happening inside the united states among you know a, a fairly disturbing swath of of american citizens and i think understanding that and not you know thinking of terrorism as this kind of other foreign thing you know a lot of it has been framed anti-immigration right we don't want to let terrorists into our country but if we're talking about this specific recent attack right these were people who came from all over the united states who were you know mostly white who were you know people's neighbors and friends and colleagues and you know i think just that fundamental understanding of that this is not something that is like you know needs to be kind of blocked out and build a wall and keep people out right it, it's already here it it is us meaning it is america and it is something that we have to deal with as a society ourselves and acknowledging that this is like a cancer that has grown inside the American body politic that has to be excised, but carefully, because it is, again, part of our country right now. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to pick up a little bit on on two things that Jen said. First, I, I'm going to push her this is us analogy in a perhaps provocative direction. Uh, and second, we're going to talk about the taxonomy of the different groups that are involved and how to think about them in the terrorism spectrum. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more. And get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about how to think about the question of was the Capitol Hill riot a form of terrorism? And if so, we think it's certainly plausible to treat it as such. Like, what does that mean in terms of how we understand uh, the response and and its role in in American security policy. Now, before the break, Jen was talking about how this can't be separated from the United States and our self conception in the way that other kinds of terrorism sometimes are, right? Because they're perpetrated literally by foreigners. I want to push this a step further, right? Like one thing that we talk about in the terrorism literature is state sponsorship, right? Is that some terrorist groups are, if not directed by governments certainly supported by governments or political factions uh, inside the government uh, that see the terrorists as a useful proxy. I don't want to say exactly that the Republican Party and Donald Trump are the state sponsors of these people, but the line is a lot closer 
than we might want it to be, right? And this isn't just that Trump encouraged uh, and incited the violence before and, and in fact, for years had been telling far-right groups like the Proud Boys uh, that the famous quote from the from the debate this year was uh, stand back and stand by towards the Proud Boys. He'd been inciting violence at his rallies for years. Um, the president seems to like violence by his supporters. You know, you also had um, members of Congress taking people on a suspicious amount of tours. That's not my language. It's another member of Congress who thought that they saw people who were rioters the next day being toured around in ways that seemed like a tactical briefing by other members of Congress. The Capitol Police have suggested that there are members of Congress in some reports who may have uh, some culpability in what happened. Uh, obviously, these are there are some Republicans who reportedly had a role in planning the rally itself, whether or not they planned the violence or helped any of the planning in that is still an open question. Again, it's not quite state sponsorship in the way that we ordinarily understand it, but the lines between actual factions of the U.S. government, including the president of the United States and armed violent groups are, are much blurrier than we'd want them to be or then makes a policy response necessarily as easy as it might be otherwise, right? It's complicating when there are actual members of the government who have linkages to these violent groups. Yeah, I mean, I think we should be clear that we don't have any direct evidence like so far that members of Congress were involved in and planning the violence, right? Like Zach said, these are reports and statements that I assume are being investigated right now, but so far, these are still just kind of allegations. So I just kind of want to be careful there on that. But at the same time, you do have the photo of, of Josh Hawley, Republican, who is walking into the Capitol as there was this you know mob of protesters gathered outside right when he's going in to start the voting you know, to certify the 2020 election results, and he holds up his fist in solidarity. That can't be erased, right? That is something that happened. Um, you had you know, President Trump, as you said, at, at a rally with a group of these people who said, let's go march to the Capitol. He also said he was going to march with them, and then Secret Service told him he couldn't. But it wasn't just that, right? You had the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, saying we need to have trial by combat to solve this. And yes, you can say, well, that's just rhetoric. That's political rhetoric. We talk about politics and, and fighting and politics all the time, and nobody means physical violence. But when it adds up over time and you see you know, Trump saying, Things like encouraging, you know, law enforcement to be rougher with suspects when they're putting them in in police cars, right? Or when you, you know, offer to pay the, you know, legal fees of someone who beats up a protester at a rally, right? That is an an kind of explicit and implicit call for violence. That, you know, more extreme supporters on the, you know, we can debate whether they're the fringes or at the core of of some of Trump's supporters, but. They hear that as a call to arms, a literal call to arms. You know, whether or not the people saying that literally meant, I want you to bear arms and go storm the Capitol, that's how it was taken. And it's not hard to see why, right? And, you know, I think part of the issue here, and this is something I, you know, I want to get into, is kind of the, the wide array of groups that were involved at the Capitol, but who were all kind of united by Donald Trump, Right. There was a huge kind of vast array across the kind of far right political spectrum of people. But, but the one kind of unifying thing was Trump and his rhetoric and his call and his saying, you know, democracy is being stolen. Your country is being stolen. We need to fight back. And they answered the call. And the result 
was, you know, a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. There were videos of some people that were in that group that were basically going, we were here, you know, the president invited us. Like, right. <laughs> that's right. That's how they felt. Um, and it's hard to see why they shouldn't see it that way. Like, it, it makes sense. I mean, Trump was even like, I'll be there with you. And then he he left. Um, and he but, said, we love you. You're special. As they was still going on. Right. No, yeah. I mean, even though he was sort of initially was like, this is bad, violence, bad, but also we love you. You're great. You're awesome. I mean, he loves anyone that loves him. I find it fascinating. This conversation reminds me of one of my least favorite uh, arguments in this whole thing, which is, and usually hear from right-leaning folks, um, especially when it comes to jihadist terrorism, they go like, why doesn't the Muslim world or the Islamic community like police themselves? Why can't they like call this out or whatever? And now I'm kind of thinking like, where are you guys? (laughs) Why aren't you calling this out? You know, you had a moment to impeach the president. Some Republicans did, but most didn't. Uh, You know, this was the moment to say, okay, our bad, you know, we, we fed the beast that ate us. Um, But they haven't, there's no culpability here. And so one that, that was always sort of a a nasty argument um, and a bigoted one when it came to um, uh, jihadist terrorism. But and also, I just want to add, you're absolutely right, but also false because Muslim right, yes, you know, leaders and organizations and individuals have been calling it out literally over and over. But yes, go on. Right, and and, and another important point of disanalogy is that we're talking about a specific organizational structure. If people had been like, well, X mosque had a role given the its imam's rhetoric in radicalizing this group of people. Uh, why aren't they condemning the violence that their rhetoric of, like potentially? promoted that would be one thing but it's saying like all muslims anywhere is generally the the term of this argument it's it's pretty messed up whereas in this case there's a specific organization which is to say the republican party with a specific set of leaders who have been playing footsie with this kind of rhetoric you know i wrote something on the site about this but there is a very 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 long history in the republican party especially in conversations centering on guns of arguing that insurrection against the U.S. government might be justifiable uh, if democratic policies are passed, uh, gun control most notably, but also several other ones, right? You know, in 2009, uh, Representative Don Young, who's still in Congress, signed a letter written by an actual far-right militia member calling for violence against the U.S. government if gun control is passed. And the person who wrote that letter, who drafted it, uh, was subsequently arrested for uh, on, on charges of attempting to abduct U.S. government officials. Like, this is not, again, a particularly new thing. It's something that has blended for a long time through a, a strategy um, on the parts of some members of the party of seeing these people as potential constituents. Uh, and, and people, this kind of language is one that motivates and energizes the base. But now you have a broad and deep set of, of movements that take this rhetoric very seriously, um, and that see them sell and see like they're being, um, a conduit between the official Republican party and them, which is to say Donald Trump, that makes them more invested in partisan disputes. You know, in the past you would be more likely to get, Farm militias saying the entire political spectrum is pointless and useless. The Republicans are just as bad as the Democrats, et cetera. And a lot of that still exists. But the the way that Trump has interacted with violence makes a lot of people on the far right feel like it's actually our party. Like our interests are being represented and we've affected a kind of takeover of a mainstream institution and made it less 
hostile to our vision of what the country ought to be, which makes them in turn more likely to engage in violence in pursuit of partisan disputes, right? And that are involved and engaged in partisan disagreements. Um, I, I want to point out a very specific event that I think really showcases this in terms of Trump. Um, if you remember uh, in, I believe, around November of, of this past year, there was a huge, disturbing, terrifying kidnapping plot against Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And it was revealed and the people who were involved were caught. Um, and it was an extremely detailed plot. They were surveilling her. They had plans to kidnap her, potentially kill her. Right. It was really horrifying. Um, and a lot of this was specifically over, you know, masking and lockdown orders related to coronavirus, but also kind of a broader anti-government sentiment. When that happened, the president didn't respond in the way that you would think that a president would respond by saying, you know, this is completely unacceptable. Do not do this. Right. He continued to essentially criticize her for, you know, imposing stay at home orders, things like that. And, you know, at one point uh, the, the crowd is chanting at a, at a Trump rally. He, he mentions her. They're chanting, lock her up. And he says, quote, I don't comment on that because every time if I make just even a little bit of a nod, they say the president led them on. Now, I don't have to lead you on. And then he went on to say of the actual alleged plot against Whitmer, maybe it was a problem. Maybe it wasn't like that is not <laughs> that that is a a very clear wink and a nod that violence against sitting government officials is acceptable and potentially encouraged. Right. He had an opportunity to say, yeah, you literally can't do this. You can't plot to kidnap and potentially kill someone that I, you know, I, I disagree with their policies or whatever, because he's talked about her for a long time and railed against her, especially around the coronavirus stuff. But then there was this plot and he had the opportunity to say, this is not what I meant. And he didn't. And that's the kind of thing that I think specifically led directly to this exact attack that we saw. Right. It's just an escalation. Well, if that was OK. Why not take it directly to the to the U.S. Capitol? Right. And I think that's the kind of thing that we see when you're talking about state sponsorship of terrorism. No, Trump isn't literally funding a far right militia. Right. He's not, you know, buying weapons in Chechnya and and, and shipping them to Oregon. Right. To support, a, you know, a militia group or, or a training camp. But rhetorically, he's giving them the the kind of political cover to engage in this kind of violence and saying, you know, without explicitly saying it, but pretty clearly encouraging it, saying this is acceptable. This will win my good graces. This is the kind of thing that I want to see. And that is terrifying. You know, we're nearing the end of the Trump era. This is our last episode before he's out of office. And well, for this term, at least, you know, I keep thinking about what his legacy is going to be. And I think there's there's tons of uh, there's tons of fodder. Um, but the more I think about this and, and the challenges the U.S. will face, I don't think it's going to be that he was, you know, impeached twice or that he oversaw the most mass deaths of Americans in, in a term or he oversaw an economic collapse or failed to end wars that he promised to end. Um, it's going to be that he did really nothing to stop a massive terrorist threat to the United States and, in fact, egged it on, promoted it incited it played a pretty big part on one of the greatest attacks on the u.s government in 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 centuries frankly and 
that is something that is going to be left for Biden and future presidents to deal with. A report from the from the Department of Homeland Security from 2011 said at the time there were 6,000 hate groups. I would bet there are more now, and I would bet that they're more active and more violent. And you're also seeing one of the greatest runs on buying guns ever in American history. This could only get worse. And we've been trying to pinpoint the person or the party. It is a Republican party, but I would say that Donald Trump is the, we have a a piece on the site about this, and I think it's true. Donald Trump is the accelerant. He is the problem. And this, when I think about the Trump years, this is what I'm going to think about most, that he promoted and made worse a massive security threat on the United States. It is the president's number one job to protect Americans. And he's failed at that in many areas, but especially in this one. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just want to pivot a little bit to talking about these specific groups because, in general, we've been discussing them as sort of like nebulous, violent, far right factions. But they have a variety of different ideologies that make them more or less amenable to violence under different circumstances, right? Like, you have uh, groups like the Proud Boys that are a, a Western chauvinist group. They're intensely anti-Muslim. They're anti-Semitic, um, but not exactly white nationalists. Uh, in a way, they have a, a actually fairly significant amount of minority members involved in them, really um, sexist also and super into street brawling. Uh, they're a different kind of violent threat from white nationalist militias, right, who are uh, much more into violent terrorism, especially when they're the accelerationist variety who believes that you need to do uh, you know intense and random acts of violence in order to spur on chaos and destabilize the U.S. government. Uh, then you have three percenters who are a gun rights-focused militia group who's opposed to state control, basically anti-government. Um, this is all like a broad... We can get into a variety of other different specific groups, uh, but it's a real motley crew of different factions that have been united in the way that Alex was just talking about as seeing Trump as an avatar of their belief system, as somebody that is at least in some way useful for them. But in the post-Trump era... I wonder how that fractures and how that leads to, or if it fractures, right? Is it, is it possible that militia groups keep finding common cause under the banner of a kind of like stabbed in the back myth where Trump was betrayed by the Republican Party and the mainstream system failed and so we need to work together to undermine it? Uh, do they just go off and do different things? They don't really coordinate right now, but sort of acted in concert in the January 6th uprising. Like, I don't know. It's it's actually quite complicated to understand this. And, and I don't know what to expect in terms of whether the, the overall level of violence will decrease or increase uh, after Trump leaves office. Yeah, there's there's actually really good um, terrorism scholarship that's come out of uh, of a lot of this, these kind of developments that has looked at this. Um And uh, some scholars, uh, a couple scholars termed it fringe fluidity, this kind of this ideological convergence among all these disparate groups. You have, you know, even the the neo-Luddites, right? So groups who are kind of suspicious of technology. Um, and you can see that in people, you know, especially around like the anti-vaxxer movement kind of fits in there. Um, like you said, you know, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers, a lot of whom recruit from the military. You have even incels, uh, you know, picking up language of white nationalism. You have eco-fascism, which, you know, basically... It uses kind of white nationalism and and Nazi ideological tropes to kind of argue for saving the planet, right? You have this kind of 
huge kind of convergence. Um, another scholar has called it uh, essentially salad bar ideologies. So where, you know, the kind of concept of the salad bar, right, you pick and choose the things that you like, and then you put them all on your plate, and that's your meal. So, you know, I think the fracturization of all of these groups is not new, right? I think the issue we're actually dealing with is that these groups were previously all fractured, right? This was a, a kind of umbrella of just a whole bunch of different groups that didn't interact directly, but borrowed from each other and kind of had a lot of ideological overlaps. The problem is that they have, you know, even QAnon, right, which is just a bizarre, uh, I don't even know if we're calling it a conspiracy theory anymore. I think no, it's it's definitely a conspiracy theory. It's just a lot of different conspiracy theories. Yes, I know that it's a conspiracy theory, but I, I've heard people arguing that it should be, that it's more aptly described as a mass delusion at this point, um, and even more, you know, almost on the level of religious cult belief um, beyond just a, you know, conspiracy theory, just because it's so vast and and brings in so many different kind of pieces. And I can't even get into the QAnon, but generally the idea that Trump is fighting this huge cabal of Democrats and pedophiles uh, and Satanists or something. Also, John F. Kennedy Jr. fits in. I don't know. Google it. But um, no, don't do not <laughs> do not do not do that. This is the worst advice anyone's given on the show so sorry, far. Sorry, Google don't Google it, it and don't bing it, don't altavista it, don't anything. <laughs> sorry, Google it and then type in Vox together and get. How about we'll just link to our explainer in the show notes. Let's just do that. Jen, Jen is trying to radicalize you. Jen no, wants you to believe in Q. This is online radicalization, right? Okay. Yeah. Right <laughs> Please don't Google it unless you type Vox with it and go directly to our explainer. Otherwise, oh God, I'm sorry, everyone. I'm sorry, America. Um, no, but I mean, you have the, the QAnon people were a huge faction, you know, in, in the Capitol violence, right? The, the woman who was shot and killed by Capitol police was a big believer in, in Q. And so, you know, QAnon is not overtly white nationalists, right? They're not neo-Nazis, though there, there are elements of that. There are pockets of that. There is, you know, again, some ideological overlap. But again, I think the problem is that all of these groups came together literally physically because Trump called to kind of everyone and tapped into this kind of sentiment. And what they all kind of had in common was this support for Trump and the support for the idea that the country was being stolen and that he was calling on patriots, right? It hit kind of all the the key highlights, you know, his racist rhetoric for, well, decades. Uh, it taps into the kind of white nationalist thing. He, you know, pushes conspiracy theories left and right, his treatment of uh, medical treatments during the, the coronavirus, right, pushing unproven cures like hydroxychloroquine, things like that, right, taps into the anti-vaxxer. Uh, just in general, it's this kind of broad coalition that didn't actually work together, that now are all united. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm concerned about. It's not that these groups are, are fractured. They were, and now they're not. And that's what really <laughs> scares me is that having actual tactical strategic like conversations and connections between these groups making these connections directly is potentially making the threat a lot worse right if they're sharing tactics if they're, sh they're sharing successes and things like that that is really scary so uh, I want to close the show with a quote because I've been doing some reporting on this I'm, I'm working on a, a bigger piece on the potential for uh, increased uh, political violence in the U.S. afterwards. Uh, a quote from uh, Jan Berger, who's a terrorism expert who, who knows a lot about right-wing violence in the United States. And so he told me, and I quote, 
It's been decades since there was a large domestic extremist movement with centralized charismatic leadership in this country. If Trump wants to be the man, he can be the man. So that's the question outgoing. Is Trump going to be the man that unites this, or is he, as, as JM suggests later in our conversation, more likely to be somebody who just kind of throws fuel on the fire but is too disorganized and too uh, disinterested in details to become an actual movement leader? And that's one of the questions we'll look for going forward. I would be stunned if we don't come back to this topic um, later on in the next few months or years. Uh, but for now, uh, I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review worldly wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next week to talk about uh the transition in power most likely and what a biden foreign policy is going to be before we go it's really important that i thank sophie lalonde our producer who does such a great job with the show after you know getting dropped in the deep end pretty early on here so thanks sophie uh take care y'all